You're listening to the Future Tech Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies such as artificial intelligence, stem cells, 3D printing, gene editing, Bitcoin, blockchain, the microbiome, quantum computing, virtual reality, and exploring space are much closer than you might think. In fact, many early versions of these technologies are in play right now, and the companies that are using these technologies are the focus of this podcast. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a thorny medical problem. Remember, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoyed the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and tell your friends about it. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech and Future Tech Health Podcast. I have uh, Tom Coughlin, president of uh, Coughlin Associates. Uh, he's a widely respected digital storage analyst and a business and tech consultant. He had over 35 years in the data storage industry with uh, various engineering and management positions. Um, he has much publications and uh, six patents to his credit. He's also the author of Digital Storage and Consumer Electronics, The Essential Guide. And um, we're going to talk about something unusual today, DNA and digital storage. So, Tom, thanks for coming. Thanks very much, Richard. Looking forward to talking to you. Yeah, so tell me, what's the premise of being able to store information using DNA? Well, uh, uh, DNA uh, is, of course, uh, what our own uh, genetic information and that of uh, all life on Earth is stored on. And uh, there actually have been, uh, people have been able to recover DNA from old species um, and basically potentially reconstruct, uh, reconstruct or at least learn a lot about uh, those creatures. Um, there's even talk about using old DNA, say from woolly mammoths uh, that were frozen in the tundra, um, to uh, eventually recreate such animals. So uh, DNA um, seems like it's a means of uh, of natural uh, uh, molecule that uh, can store information for a fairly long period of time, um, as long as it's kept in the right condition. So I think that's the that's kind of the initial inspiration. The other part of it is is that uh, the tools for being able to uh, write, create uh, DNA, write it, as well as to read the information on the DNA or read, you know, read the sequences of uh, uh, on this DNA have uh, in, improved enormously uh, since the first uh, genomic, uh, full genomic analysis was done in the early part of this, of this, of this century. And so um, the prices and the, the, uh, the time it takes to write and read uh, information, in the case of doing digital storage, it's going to be a synthetic uh, DNA, not natural DNA. Um, those costs have gone down to the point where people are starting to consider that as an option for uh, keeping information and especially for keeping uh, digital information. Can you give me a comparison between what it costs to first sequence the human genome and storage capacity and you know the cost and the speed now? Uh, yes, the first ones were uh, enormous. Uh, there was like a huge government project and also private projects costing many millions of dollars. Um, in order to get uh, the first uh, genomic sequencing. And now I, I believe the costs uh, for uh, genomic sequence are around $1,000. And uh, there's projections that would get in the range of $100 without too, too long a period of time, um, which also, of course, will have great benefit for personalized medicine that's based upon the person's actual uh, uh, genomic makeup. And so the thing that's really driving a lot of the development of that technology, in fact, is the medical profession trying to create uh, uh, personalized medicines based upon uh, 
uh, utilizing your own genomic information to tailor uh, drugs and, uh, and processes uh, that may benefit you individually. Maybe have fewer side so, effects as well. Yeah, so if you were to compare uh, storage on current digital media, how long does it last before it gets corrupted and what's the density of the storage capacity versus uh, DNA? How long can it be stored and what's the density? Uh, DNA potentially can store very, 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 very high densities of information. Um, you know, it, 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 but again, there's a lot of, uh, a lot of things need to be, uh, to be done in order to enable uh, the uh, commercial DNA storage. And we're still in the early days of such things. But, um, you know, the potential uh, capacity is maybe a thousand times that what, uh, what's currently achievable with, um, with modern, modern storage uh, technologies, probably hard disk drives are maybe the example to sh uh, particular for that. Um, and, you know, so it has a lot of potential. Be, uh, a thousand times in dent. A thousand times in depth. Yeah, somewhere in that range, I think. How, how would that be possible? What what allows it to do that? You know, what is it? Just uh, it's the way it's stored, or what, you know, what is it? Well, we're talking about volumetric density. So if I have, uh, um, you know, strands of DNA, I could pack them into uh, space and have a much, you know, synthetic DNA and potentially have a much higher bit density per volume, you know, like per cubic centimeter, um, than I could with, uh, say, hard disk drives or with flat or um, well, flash memory for that matter, but magnetic tape, hard disk drives, for, for instance. And so that's, that's the potential advantage is uh, um, that I could have a high, one of the potential advantages is have a high volumetric density, um, you know, some uh, proven, you know, under the right conditions, proven longevity of information. Now, it's not to say that there won't be probably unique uh, uh, means by which uh, bits get corrupted and uh, that you won't need to put in some kind of parity and some error correction. In recording the information, that's highly likely that you'd have to do that, and it's going to have its own um, unique bit rot characteristics, things of that sort. So, uh, but um, interesting thing about DNA. One of the really interesting things about DNA storage is when I, if I write a, a DNA sequence, I can write like a million copies, as about as fast as I can write a single copy. So, if you want a lot of copies of a piece of information, this would be a way of making that. Everyone, everyone could have their own piece of, of this information on a piece of DNA if they wanted to. Well, why is that possible? What is it about DNA that allows you to make so many copies so quickly with no more time than one copy? Well, in fact, that's how they, uh, how they purify uh, DNA is they get a strand of a DNA that they want, and then they create multiple copies of it. So a lot of the technology that they developed is, is to create large amounts of, uh, a, of a, DNA, a DNA sequence. Um, in order to what they you know magnify magnify that for other work that they want to do on it, so it's just one of the characteristics of the, of how people work with DNA that they can do that. So potentially it has that capability that I can make an awful lot of copies of a piece of data on a synthetic DNA. Um, now writing it is not necessarily fast, but I can make a lot of copies. And likewise, reading is not very fast. And part of that whole getting the cost down. Um, both for potentially for digital storage applications and also for these medical applications is uh, increasing the throughput of uh, DNA, both writing, a DNA, creating DNA, writing it, and also reading the DNA, uh, being able to decode the sequences. Um, and those speeds, um, people are putting a lot of technological, a lot of technological development work and R&D into improving those speeds, a lot of being driven by, by, this med by the medical applications potential medical applications, and, uh, but it also allows for the possibility of lowering the cost of uh, writing and reading data 
uh, synthetic DNA and therefore being a viable storage means. Like I say, you know, we're still in the early days, but you know, in 10 years time, um, there's some possibilities that particularly for a passive archiving type application that DNA could be an option. Synthetic DNA, uh, writing and reading information could be an option for long-term uh, passive storage. That is um, information that you don't access all the time that, that you could keep that on, uh, on a on synthetic DNA sequence. What happens in a typical uh, hard drive? How is information stored? And how does it become corrupted if, uh, if it's sitting there? I thought it would you know, just forever uh, be stored and not become corrupted. Now, well, so uh, we we all face the laws of thermodynamics, and uh, entropy tends to increase. Entropy being disorder, um, and so there's thermally activated. So, way that the hard disk drives work, and, and you know, and there's similarities in the way that almost any kind of uh, digital storage technology is going to work, is that uh, the uh, uh, in the case of hard disk drives, we're using magnetic fields to read and write information. So you have a something called a head, which generates a magnetic field, um, and also um, will be able to read back magnetic information um, off of the magnetic media. And the heart, the magnetic media rotates underneath of these uh, magnetic heads, which read write information on concentric tracks um, on a disk surface, and um, that's how you read and write the information. And uh, there's also circuitry for doing signal processing, extracting the data. Um, there's special coding that's done in writing the data that uh, uh, gives you some amount of repetition of data so that if uh, if there is some either noise during the read or write process uh, or if there is some some minor corruption of the data that you can still recover. Uh, there also are processes for going through uh, data uh, when it's not being used and making sure it's okay and rewriting it if it's having trouble. So, But what happens is, and this is true of any, any means of, of storing information, is that uh, thermally activated processes, in the case of magnetics, it's the random um, reversal of magnetism of the very fine grains of material in, in the case of a hard disk drive on the disk, on the disk media surface um, over a period of time. So there's some random reversal happening over a period of time. If enough of that happens, um, it would tend to cause problems in some areas in the media. Uh, and therefore, your signal will degrade, and eventually, if that continues, you won't be able to read information, or you'll you'll lose pieces of information. So, um, one a key element in any kind of uh, uh, storage uh, technology is to build in redundancy, um, to build in error checks, and occasionally uh, to go through and make sure the data um, is okay, uh, and you know, and, and to rewrite it if it needs to be rewritten in order to recover the data or make it so that it will last longer. But it require, often requires some kind of active management to do that. Now, true of hard disk drives is true of magnetic tape. It actually is true also of, uh, you know, some extractor-based technologies like flash memory that uh, over time, data um, has a tendency to, uh, to uh, uh, degrade. And, um, and so you need to uh, actively, you know, rewrite it and move it on. That's, that's sort of the natural phenomenon. The other thing that happens, of course, is, what's called technology obsolescence, which is um, the technologies that we use to read and to re record information have been changing over time. For instance, how many people nowadays um, have the tools to be able to read a tape, uh, cassette tape, for example, uh, back in the 80s, um, 90s, and there been a fair amount of technology to do that, but a lot of people don't have that anymore. This is for small cassette tapes. Um, and so as technology changes over time, and that can be the recording technology itself, but also could be the more important 
the interfaces and even the software drivers that enable um, the devices that can read and write that information, uh, those technologies may change. So another factor in terms of trying to keep information for the long term is in addition to natural degradation of information that can occur if you don't uh, intervene and try to uh, um, catch it before it happens. The other thing is the technology that you're using can become obsolete and that can even be software itself. So uh, actually carrying information into the future, into the long future in particular, um, has a lot of requirements behind it. And so there's people that are working on um, interesting technologies where, for instance, they will uh, 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 essentially archive a package that um, contains, for instance, um, the, the information about the original software that created it, that one could create an emulation of that software in order to be able to recover the data. Um, that gets rid of some of the, if you will, the sort of me metadata uh, constraints. But the other thing, of course, is physical interfaces, things like that. For instance, 100 years from now, will I have? Will there be such a thing as the USB interface? Will it? Will my old USB be able to plug into that and work? So these are, in terms of long-term storage of information, whatever the technology, um, there's there is uh, there's definitely things that need to be uh, considered in trying to uh, uh, to bring data in the future, and there's definite challenges in doing so. Well, so what are some of the, um, I mean, you kind of said it, but what are some of the current roadblocks with um, storing information on DNA and, you know, where would the DNA be housed and how could it, uh, how can information so be retrieved from it, you know, when needed? Sure, sure. So there's there's a, a number of companies that are, a number of startups that I've, I've run into uh, and done some work with some of them um, that are looking at using DNA for, for, for uh, storage information. Some of them um, basically, they're just going to create a, uh, a DNA strands. Um, you dry them out essentially, and then when they're dry, they can they can remain stable for a fairly long period of time under you know controlled conditions. Uh, and then you reconstitute them and put them in a reader, and you can read back the information. Not a very fast process, but uh, you know that's one way in which people are looking at doing it. They're also, and I can't go into too much detail on it, but uh, uh, folks that are working on um, actually using semiconductor technologies. And there's a lot of work that being done, for instance, by an outfit called IMEC, which is in Belgium, uh, which is a, uh, a nanotechnology and electronics uh, research center um, in Leuven, in Belgium. And they've been, uh, they and, and there's other people as well, have been doing a lot of work on building, uh, for instance, microfluidic um, and electronic devices uh, on silicon. So sort of nanotechnology, uh, MEMS-type devices, microfluidic devices, building with sensors, building with electronics. And actually be able to, for instance, move fluids around um, inside of uh, a silicon uh, silicon matrix. And um, there are people that are looking at uh, building, using that kind of technology um, and building read and write uh, capabilities uh, uh, essentially on a chip basis and uh, saying that they can achieve very high densities of information storage uh, with that, with some, uh, with a high, certainly a higher data rates, uh, both in read and write that you could get from that. Uh, more passive approach where I just dry it and I have to reconstitute it and read it, read the DNA again. So the DNA essentially stays inside of um, some cells on a chip from which they can be uh, write, written to or read from over time. So there's some fascinating ideas that people are working on, which again, they're in the early days, but uh, they offer a promise that uh, uh, we may add DNA to uh, some of the di other digital storage technologies that we are, are used today. And in fact, in many regards, I think, if you consider the all the new um, solid state memory technologies, as well as uh, flash memory, which has been around for a while, hard disk drives, tape, 
we can add DNA to the mix. And, and essentially, we're just getting the whole uh, storage memory hierarchy is becoming even more complex and more specialized in terms of what, uh, uh, how we may use this technology together or singly for accomplishing different, uh, different tasks. So what's going to be your specific role? Are you um, investing in startups or what, like, what are you specifically doing in this area? So, so what I've done in this area right now is, uh, so first of all, I'm a storage analyst. So I'm always interested in what people are doing with any kind of memory or storage technology. So I love this stuff. This is my bread and butter. And so I'm a, uh, uh, I write on technologies. For instance, I just finished a report recently with a colleague on uh, emerging memories for artificial intelligence applications. Um, but I also do consulting and I work with startups and other people in terms of technologies and how it might be implemented. So I've done a bit of that with uh, some of the uh, uh, DNA storage folks. And um, I, I love doing this kind of stuff because it's so fascinating. I, it, first of all, digital uh, Digital storage has allowed, essentially, uh, it's the enabler of modern civilization, you know, processing, storage, and networking. And um, yeah, everything we got nowadays is digital, and that all has to be kept somewhere. And uh, so uh, all applications, since they are dependent upon uh, various types of digital storage and memory technologies. So that's the kind of stuff I deal with. That's what uh, my interests are. Um, I also put on some events uh, in this area. In fact, I've got a, a workshop uh, uh, with a professor at Stanford I'm doing on August 29th uh, that's uh, on emerging memories and artificial intelligence. Um, so, uh, I'm sorry, the report I did actually was on, I think I miss, may have misstated that earlier, so I'm not going to correct that, but the report that I did recently with a colleague uh, was on emerging memories, um, their development, the, the market, and also capital equipment in order to be able to, uh, to manufacture them. But I'm also doing this workshop uh, on August 29th at Stanford with a professor there at the Bechtel Center, which is going to be uh, uh, looking at uh, various types of emerging memories um, and artificial intelligence. And that includes, uh, there's some interesting AI, app, AI interactions with these emerging memories, like uh, examples are phase change memory or resistive memory, where they're actually using them as emulating, um, to some extent, the way that nerves uh, in the brain work. And so they call it neuromorphic computing, so sort of a spike uh, based process, an analog computing process that they're, they're using these these memory cells in order to be able to enable and it, it, it emulates the brain. And so there's uh, really fascinating things people are doing, applying at technologies like that, as well as other technologies uh, for deep learning, you know, machine learning, uh, uh, convolutional networks, um, all these uh, related applications. And well, so, how, would those, I, so how, how would a, a set of stored data be different if an AI was interacting with it and if it emulated more how people store data in their brains, like would the, the data set change over time in prescribed ways or with certain elements yeah. highlighted somewhat diminished? Yeah, so so what they're doing is they're uh, uh they're they're they built they, they're actually using memory technologies. Um and the particular examples that are being used are what's called resistive memory and phase change memory. And they're but they're using them as sort of analog processing units. Uh, and so they they process information in a way that's related to the way the brain does it, and so that's the uh, um, th that's essentially what they do. Now there's other things with these emerging memories people are doing uh, that that's called neuromorphic computing, and may be very useful, especially for training applications where you're actually training an artificial intelligence. Um, in the case of uh, uh, actually using that stuff in the field, there's a process called inference, which is done. Uh, where they take uh, 
uh, a train a training model that's already been created. Now I'm trying to apply that to um, say images captured in the field or uh, voice voices. So I can do image recognition, voice recognition, things of that sort. And the technology used for that is called inference. So they, are, they have these inference engines which need weighting functions that represent, uh, for instance, characteristics of sound or characteristics of an image that it can then process using the algorithm developed uh, during the learning process in order to, uh, um, in, to say, in this camera, I'm seeing a dog, I'm seeing a car, things like that, say if I'm an autonomous vehicle or uh, recognizing somebody, you know, the voice of somebody or something of that sort. Uh, so a lot of IoT type applications um, that want to include artificial intelligence, what they're doing is they're um, either in the endpoint device or at the edge close to it, they're going to be having these inference engines. And these inference engines have to have uh, waiting functions that are stored in memory. And uh, what they're looking at, especially if I have a battery powered device, that uh, non-volatile um, emerging solid state memories like magnetic random access memory may be an option to include in these, uh, uh, these devices because uh, I, can, I can save power because they don't have to refresh the memory all the time like I do with volatile memory. But the other thing is I can turn them off and I'm not using it. So I have a lot more ways of, uh, of reducing my power usage and therefore increasing battery life. So those are some of the interesting well, what, things. What about, that, uh, yeah. what about on the initial storage? I mean, there's data streams that are so large that it just wouldn't be practical to store all the information coming in. So what about a, a discriminatory function that's on the front end of a storage unit that, you know, is using AI to say, all right, store this, don't store that, store this, don't store that, and, you know, deprecate this, uh, this is more important, you know, kind of work with the data and dynamically store it and change it as they can take it in. Yeah, I think maybe the, the prime example that would be, let's say I have a, an autonomous car that's in a connected network environment in a city. So I have something, say, called a smart city. Um, and I have a lot of, uh, say it's 5G network or something like that. I've got intelligence, actual processing power at the edge, say at cell towers or even in uh, even more distributed than that. And the car itself uh, takes in a lot of data. It's got, you know, they're talking about these things generating maybe a terabyte of data a day. But most of that data is meant for immediate processing and analysis because the car if it's going to be able to help you to drive or drive itself, it's got to make split-second decisions. Can't wait for the latency of going over the network. So it does a lot of stuff locally, um, and that might be with an inference engine. But then there's results of that analysis or the commands that the car gives that it wants to share with the outside network so that, for instance, that car and all the other cars in the area, um, I may have uh, a network that keeps track of what cars are doing or warns another car there's a car that you can't see right now around the corner that's, that he's going to be driving through the intersection, right? And so it can warn another car and, and uh, help to keep, keep accidents down and, and that sort of thing. So it's going to require both intelligence capabilities and some learning capabilities, of course, at the, at the edge or in the device themselves, as well as in the data centers. So the big data centers, you know, the cloud. So um, what we're seeing, actually, it's kind of interesting, you know, uh, there's like this... Uh, eternal back and forth between centralized processing and distributed processing. And I think um, with the growth in AI and uh, uh, the, the sort of uh, requirements that we're moving back into a distributed computing environment where there's gonna be essentially processing all over the place. And that's what enables a lot of these IoT and autonomous, autonomous driving or any kind of, uh, or even in factories enabling uh, factory 4.0 where I've got uh, 
uh, robots that make a lot of decisions themselves. They're working directly with human beings, you know, rather than restricted areas. So they've got to be friendly to humans. Um, and that the, this distributed new distributed computing environment that's using these um, artificial intelligence algorithms of various sorts and doing both learning and, and, and training and also application of, of those models, you know, the inference engines, that kind of thing, that all these things are going to be very distributed. And um, if we're going to generate more data than ever before, and some of that data is going to have to be kept. <laughs> and that's where the storage comes in and the memory comes in for the short-term short-term stuff. Any other, um, I mean, can you give just a few details of any other storage schemes that you know, really were surprising to you or you have uh, a lot of hope in or you think they're going to be like really instrumental in, uh, in the future? Oh, there's there's a lot. Uh, if anything, we're getting a, it's, uh, the storage um, options are more complex. I mean, they're greater than ever before. And, uh, and it's an interesting thing. I think it has to do with the fact that as, as human beings, we're natural stores of information. Um, and it's, you know, our brains work by getting layers and layers of information, and that's what's created culture is the handing down of information. So we're naturally information processing uh, creatures um, by our nature, and uh, uh, the options and means by which we do this uh, are seem to be increasing over time. Um, so I keep track of things that are going on, always looking for notices of this or that. And there's always seems to be about every two or three weeks some some new um, storage technology that some oftentimes the university will announce and says it's going to re it's going to take over everything and you know it's done in glass with holograms or it's done you know with some kind of weird semiconductor technology or other so there's enormous uh, creativity that goes into um, trying to create new ways in which we we as information processing creatures um, new ways in which we can understand can capture and understand the world around us and ourselves. And um, so I think it's a, there's enormous creativity there, enormous demand, and I don't see it ever diminishing. Um, I think it's just the nature of who we are. Um, and there's know, some, you, yeah, go ahead. Anyone trying to trying to data mine uh, literally someone's brain, you know, their neuron, their neurons, their neural network. I don't know what you get from it, but you seen anyone that's trying to do something like that to emulate it and or download it somehow. So I'm actually um, a volunteer with the IEEE. Um, I'm currently the president, actually, of IEEE USA. But I've been involved in um, an activity, an IEEE technical activities that's called Future Directions. Um, and there is a, um, an initiative in IEEE Future Directions, which actually is called the Brain Initiative, uh, that has been working. In, there's a number of different groups and organizations working on that, the actual brain to electronics interface. And I would say that uh, we're in the we're not too far off from practical. In fact, there are some practical applications of that kind of technology, uh, particularly to help people with disabilities. Um, let's say um, to allow somebody to communicate with an artificial hand using their muscles and their brain, their neurons. Um, but even more complex things are uh, in the works. And um, I think, uh, and I, which I think also is going to drive some interesting consequences in terms of personal privacy and the demand for such. Uh, and legal requirements, but um, you know we're probably within decades of being able to essentially read a person's brain, um, which may allow people, for instance, to, uh, uh, if you will, to create an artificial telepathy where human, where one person can read the mind of another person, or can one person can send a thought to another person or device, um, you know, through electronics uh, without speaking. Um, but there may be even further things and. 
Um, you know, there's all this uh, discussion of deep fake technology right now, right? Where they've got, uh, uh, I can create things that, I, you know, images and videos and stuff that I can't tell what's real or not. Um, imagine you could do that by projecting directly into the brain, right? So there's going to be some interesting legal and ethical implications of these technologies in the future, uh, you know, and how do we use these things and what, uh, you know, what's the right way to use it? What are, what are human rights in, in an age of, uh, of such technologies, uh, you know, and how do you protect freedom and uh, how do you know what's true? And probably one of the things with, that, that may eventually happen is, uh, uh, you know, something along the lines of people have a right to know the truth, if you will, you know, the ground truth that, you know, what is real, actually real, physically real versus what is, um, you know, what is represented, uh, represented to them. So interesting uh, implications of all these things, but there's a lot of people working on technologies, which could, of course be done for for good or for ill, you know, in terms of their applications. Uh, but hopefully um, that the uh, we'll be using these in order to enhance life and enhance the way we work with uh, with each other and, and get along with each other and make progress and uh, do new things and uh, have adventures and fun. Excellent. So, uh, any milestones that you think are realistic that are coming in the next one to two years that uh, you can mention? Or, you know, personal things that you're working on that uh, you think will come to fruition, at least an early version oh. of the next year or two? So one thing that's interesting, I just, uh, is that uh, actually I was at the Semicon conference and there was a, uh, it was an a, a AI uh, event put on by uh, Applied Materials. Applied Materials makes semiconductor manufacturing equipment, uh, particularly, you know, used for a lot of things, but memory is one of the big drivers of semiconductor spending. And... Uh, uh, one of the things they were saying in 2018 was the first year that more data was generated by machines than humans, and that trend is only going to continue. So I think um, our machines and our devices, all the IoT devices, etc., uh, we are uh, users of data, as I said before, kind of by our nature, but um, our machines now are generating more data and will do so increasingly in the future than we have. So I think... Um, Human beings have specialized oftentimes in creating information, okay? And I'm sort of looking at the future. Information, it's, and it's so hard nowadays to, for instance, read all the literature um, that exists. But I could see the day that we create machines that can um, gather all the information generated in a field or in related fields, help us to, with, with human um, intervention and direction, synthesize that information in order to create new types of knowledge and new ways in which to, uh, to uh, um, create wisdom and, and understanding of things that probably will exceed anything we've ever had before. So I that think- That would be amazing. If Imagine if you, it you would could be. have at hand all the knowledge in the given field and you see it dynamically updated in real time and then you can make differences mm -hmm. from it and anything new yeah. that you think of, you can check it against that whole corpus of knowledge. It'd be amazing. It would be amazing, and, and against and against uh, uh, collaborators, both machine and human. You know, in other words, there's there we're still still going to be a need for a technical community for people who um, their livelihoods and their their passion is is to know things. But we will have new tools for which they can do it, and perhaps even who knows? You know, maybe some of these humans will not be of organic form. Um, we'll have to wait and see what happens there, but. Uh, uh, I just see fascinating, you know, fascinating possibilities uh, um, in the future. And, uh, you know, uh, one of the things that's really cool this year was, uh, well, the last few years, for instance, I've, I've 
uh, not sure if my original degree was in physics, but um, the uh, black hole event horizon imaging work. And the other thing was the gravity wave uh, detection that have been done within the last three, four years. Fascinating uh, ways to see new things about the universe around us. Um, and uh, that's been enabled by uh, technology, the developments of technology, you know, in terms of our processing power, in terms of storage and memory and networking, um, and our ability to build stuff that's ever more uh, complex and interesting. Um, so, you know, we know less than we will never know, than we will ever know. Um, you know, it's probably true whenever you are, but I think, uh, you know, we know we know we know a few things. We know stuff. But we don't know everything, and there's a lot more that's out there that uh, um, that will be fascinating, and uh, will keep uh, humans um, and our tools working to understand, um, you know, for I think centuries to come. Very good. Well, Tom, what's the best way for people to get in touch and to find out more? So you can find out about me at uh, TomCoughlin.com, and uh, that's I've got information there on who I am and reports I do. Uh, if you look up uh, Emerging Memories and Artificial Intelligence, you can find out about our August 29th uh, workshop at Stanford. Um, and my email is tom at tomcoffola.com if you're interested in this and want to talk more on, on things. And I'm a frequent speaker. Um, I write a lot of stuff. I do a regular blog on Forbes.com. Um, I did that book on digital storage and consumer electronics. And um, I also uh, do a lot of stuff on IEEE. So. You know, if you're involved in IEEE, you probably run into my name as well. Very good, Tom. Well, thanks for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. Thanks very much. I uh, appreciate you inviting me to come. You're listening to the Future Tech Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies such as artificial intelligence, stem cells, 3D printing, gene editing, Bitcoin, blockchain, the microbiome, quantum computing, virtual reality, and exploring space are much closer than you might think. In fact, many early versions of these technologies are in play right now, and the companies that are using these technologies are the focus of this podcast. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a thorny medical problem. Remember, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and tell your friends about it. Thank you. Thank you.